0: Thank you, Stuart. We're going to pray right now, and as Stuart has asked, we're going to pray for the selection committee, that process, and as we've recognized, we've said, there's someone God has already chosen that person, and he is going to come and serve this church and proclaim the word of God, and we're just praying for uh, the process and God to lead and guide and direct us in that. Last week I asked you to pray, that we pray boldly, that there would be a ceasefire in the Ukraine. It hasn't happened yet, so we're going to keep praying that. And we recognize there continues to be uh, innocent lives, non-combatants that are in the line of fire. We just pray for grace and peace, and we pray for a cessation of the the violence and the evasion that's taking place. Let's be bold and let's pray. So let me give you a moment to pray silently, and then I'm going to lead you in prayer. Father, we want to bring big things to you once again because you are great and almighty God. You are worthy of praise and worship and honor in every way. Lord, we bring our personal needs to you and some of them are massive and others they may seem routine to others, but for us they're very personal. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you came not to condemn us but to save sinners like us and so we have acknowledged in the Lord's Supper the forgiveness of sins that comes through the blood of Christ. Lord, we also recognize that we live in a world that has fallen and we see this again and again. And Lord, the war in Ukraine is just another example. And it reminds us to pray and to call out for the Prince of Peace to come and to come quickly. Lord, I do pray that there would be a ceasefire this week. I pray for peace. I pray for those who are in harm's way, for the refugees that have been taken in by numerous countries and some who do not have a place yet. But Father, we pray that you would end this. Lord, we also want to pray for our church, and we thank you for Stuart, for the selection committee, We pray your grace and blessing upon them, and I want to pray for your wisdom, for discernment. And Father, we want as a congregation to be faithful in prayer because we recognize we have a God who hears our prayers. and So we pray that you would guide and direct us, even as we pray, that you would guide and direct this pastor, who you know, to come here. Lord, guide us as we go to your word right now. In Christ's name, amen. It was Jesus above all, and I want to talk about a story I believe I've shared before because it's a a well-known story of Horatio Spafford. And here's his picture and his wife, Anna. And so they lived in the Chicago area, and it was around 1871, which was the Chicago fire that hit. And this guy was a real estate tycoon, a Christian man, a good Presbyterian Christian man, had a lot of real estate. It goes up in smoke in 1871. He still has some other uh, financial endeavors, but actually there's a, a major crash that happens in 1873, and it's right around then that he and his wife decide that they will take their four daughters to Europe. He is called back before he boards the ship to go to Europe. And so he has to do business in Chicago and he sends his wife and four daughters on. They are crossing the Atlantic. In the middle of the night, there are two ships that collide. And the one, the passenger ship, goes down very quickly. It sinks within 12 minutes. 226 people die on board, including the four daughters. And so we have a picture of these precious little girls that they go down with the ship. They die. Anna lives. She gets to England. And very famously, she writes back a a telegram. And we actually have an image of that telegram. And I'm just going to read the first words because she says, saved alone... What shall I do? And you can just imagine, just enter into that moment where she has to say to her husband, the girls are all with the Lord. I'm the only one who's living. Horatio will come later on and as he's in the Atlantic, the captain, aware that he's on that boat, tells him about the place where that ship went down. And it's there, as the story goes, that he pens the words for this great hymn of our faith, It is well with my soul. Now, this is the uh, stationery he penned it on. It's actually I've actually seen this. It's in a um, hotel in Jerusalem. And he writes the words to the great hymn of our faith, It is well with my soul. And I'm just going to read the first verse, but I want you to understand, that's the situation that he's writing in. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Now what do we do with the story like? I'm not going to ask anybody to enter in and say, let's just say this happens to you, because most of us don't even have four daughters. But what happens when crisis comes into your life? What happens when you are going through a period of need or struggles? Where do you go? What do you do? And there should be two words that just enter your mind automatically. Two words... What comes to mind? By faith. We we deal with this issue, this crisis, this struggle, this endeavor. By faith. We live by faith, we walk by faith, and not by sight. And that's exactly what Horatio Spafford did, because you recognize what the guy is going through. And we wouldn't wish it on anybody, and none of us should try to say, okay, how could I face that, except anytime we face crisis or trial in our life, how do we do it? By faith. Now, when I say that, I'm speaking to a particular audience here, when I say by faith, I don't mean faith in anything and everything, I mean faith in Jesus Christ. I mean faith in the promises of God. I mean faith in the power of God. I mean faith in the trust and the love of God and faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ by faith. Everyone has some kind of faith. Uh, Linda shared her testimony earlier. She had some kind of faith. She wasn't quite sure about it for a while, but she had some kind of faith. But what is the faith that pleases God, and how do we address faith in our day in the 21st century? We're going to find a lot of help in a story in Matthew chapter 9. Turn with me, Matthew 9. Or look on the screen behind you, beginning in verse 8, or 18, I'm sorry. I'm going to ask you to stand as I read. Everyone has faith, but what faith pleases God? Matthew 9, 18, while he was saying this, Jesus, a synagogue leader came and knelt before him and said, my daughter has just died, but come and put your hand on her and she will live. Jesus got up and went with his disciples, so did his disciples, I went with him and so did his disciples. Just then a woman who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years came up behind him and touched the edge of his cloak. She said to herself, if I only touch his cloak, I will be healed. Jesus turned and saw her. Take heart, daughter, he said. Your faith has healed you. And the woman was healed at that moment. When Jesus entered the synagogue leader's house and saw the noisy crowd and the people playing pipes, he said, go away. The girl is not dead, but asleep. But they laughed at him. After the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took the girl by the hand, and she got up. News of this spread through all that region. This is God's word. You may be seated. So three points. First, Jesus is the object of our faith, and we've got to make that very clear now, we're going to deal with where we are in the story, and if you've been with me, we've been talking about Jesus above all, and geographically, again, I want you to know we are in Capernaum. This story is going to happen in Capernaum, so we have a map, and we see Capernaum there just off the Sea of Galilee, and it's interesting, the leader there, who will find out his name is Jairus, uh, he is the synagogue leader. Now, there's the synagogue. If you go there today, there are ruins there, but there is a synagogue that is present. So we even have a picture of that. So this is synagogue, and I've been there. I've had my picture taken there. It is not actually a first century synagogue, though. It was built later, but it was built on the foundation of a first century synagogue. So in the next picture, you'll see those darker stones below That was the foundation of the first century synagogue. So you recognize that's where Jesus was. And one of the beautiful things is you recognize Jesus was here on this planet. And he was in that place. And there was a ruler, a leader of a synagogue whose daughter had died. And Jesus is going to deal with that very situation. The man comes and he knelt down before Jesus. My daughter has just died, but... Now, let that sink in for a moment. Most of the time, when someone says, my daughter has just died, there's not a but after that. No buts, right? My daughter has just died, and I am in severe grief. My daughter has just died, and I don't know what to do. My daughter has just died. But, isn't that interesting? It's a but. Normally when you say death, that's the end of the story. There's no more story there. That's it. But the synagogue leader says, but. Now we need to follow that and say, why would you say that? Why would you say but? But come and put your hand on her and she will what? Live. She will live. What's fascinating to me is this. Faith. Faith. Now this statement doesn't say he claimed in faith, or if there's any statement of faith here. We'll see later on there's a woman who's going to exhibit faith, but this is a clear statement of faith to me because He's basically saying death is not the final story. You are Jesus, you are above all, and death is not the final story. Praise God. That's faith. Why don't you go over to John chapter 11? John chapter 11, beginning verse 32. And this is a story, it deals with the death of Lazarus, and I'm just going to actually read one verse. So Martha has already come out to Jesus, and Mary, the sister of Lazarus, comes out. Remember, Mary was the one who sat at Jesus' feet, so she, she knows Jesus, she's heard his teaching, and she says this, when Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. He's dead, and again, that's the end of the story. But what is Jesus going to show Mary and Martha is this. No, death's not the end of the story. Because Jesus is Jesus, and he's the object of our faith. And not even death is greater than him. And once we recognize that, once we engage with that, then we understand that's what we mean by Jesus above all. Because what trial, what tragedy can you name where you can say, but it's bigger than Jesus? What is the synagogue leader trying to say? Yes, my daughter has died, but you're bigger than that. You were above it. Isn't that great? That's faith. And that's Jesus, the object of our faith. Frederick Beekner, in his book called Telling Secrets, theologian, Bible teacher, uh, was one time uh, lecturing at Harvard Divinity, and there was a student there who started uh, talking to, to Beekner, and it became evident that this student didn't have faith in God. In fact, Beekner said later on, it was odd he attended a divinity school without believing in divinity, and he asked him about his faith, and he says, well, I have Faith in faith. Now, just let that sink in for just a moment because that's a nonsensical statement. It's no different than me saying, I serve service. Faith has to have an object. You don't just say, I love love. That's that's a meaningless statement. There has to be an object, a person. I love my wife. I love the Lord. Others may say, I love money, but whatever you're going to do, you're going to love something or someone. Same thing with faith. Faith has to be have an object, and so we don't want to go on this, well, I just want to believe in faith. Faith is nothing. Jesus is everything. Our faith is in the one who is above all. Faith, in that sense, becomes the instrument, and that's how we receive grace It's not even a work. It's the means by which we receive grace. But it never saves us except by the power of Christ and the power of the resurrection. One of the things we can say about our faith is we're not gonna be able to explain everything about life or about God, I certainly can't. But the object of our faith is Jesus Christ our Lord. The one who came, lived a perfect life, was crucified, buried, rose again the third day. And he is Lord and he is Savior. There's a story I want to tell you about a a faith issue. There was a, and this is a a Bible teacher that tells this story and I'm just gonna read it. There was a young Chinese student who was traveling from China to America to study at one of the universities. A fellow passenger noticed him reading his Bible on the deck of the ship. He engaged the student in conversation. He spoke disparagingly of the Bible, endeavoring to create doubt in it, adding, and this is kind of nice, however, I would not like to disturb your faith in Christ. Here's how the Chinese student replied. The student replied, Sir, if you could disturb my faith in Christ, he would not be a big enough savior for me. In other words, he's Jesus above all. And what this student recognizes is, I have a faith in Jesus who has the power of God and the gospel's the power of God to change my life and give me eternal life. He is victorious over sin and death. And if you're gonna say something disparaging about the Bible or about Christians, or about church or whatever, and that discourages me from following Jesus Christ, then my Jesus is pretty small. And he's not big enough to save me from my trials in my life. But he is Lord. My point is simply this. Jesus, Jesus, that object of our faith. Fix your eyes on Jesus Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith. Here's the second point. Jesus honors our faith in him. So we, we continue on, but there's a, a story that's going to come in here, and it's going to come in in every one of the Synoptic Gospels. So in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, each one of them, this story is told, and the same thing is introduced. There's a woman who comes in with an issue of blood, you know, a, a woman's issue, and it's happened for 12 years. It's been going on for 12 years. It's always connected in the synoptics. I'm going to read the Luke account, Luke beginning chapter 8, verse 41. And one of the reasons I want to read from Luke, because many of you know Luke was a doctor, and he's going to give a little bit more information on this. Verse 41, then a a man named Jairus, a synagogue leader, came and fell at Jesus' feet, pleading with him to come to his house because his only daughter, a, a girl of about 12, was dying. In this case, he was dying according to uh, to Luke. Matthew just kind of condenses it and and points out that by the time Jesus got there, she was dead. As Jesus was on his way, the crowds almost crushed him. So there's a whole bunch of crowd around him crushing him almost. And a woman was there who'd been the subject of bleeding for 12 years, but no one could heal her. She came up behind him and touched the edge of the cloak and Immediately, her bleeding stopped. Who touched me, Jesus asked. When they all denied it, Peter said, Master, the people are crowding and pressing against you. But Jesus said, Someone touched me. I know that power has gone out from me. Then the woman, seeing that she could not go unnoticed, came trembling and fell at his feet. In the presence of all the people, she told why she had touched him and how she had been instantly healed. Then he said to her, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. Again, Matthew's going to condense that. What I want to point out, is she simply touches. Here's her faith. She simply believes uh, if I touch the edge of his cloak, then I will be healed. Uh, let me just point out something, and, and I want you to consider a, a few things here. It, it sounds slightly superstitious if you pull back for a little bit. All I have to do is touch part of his garment. But she recognized it wasn't the garment that had the power, it was Christ. She comes up behind Jesus in every text. She comes behind Jesus. Why? Why does he just come face to face? And finally, she touches that tassel, and that tassel is uh, one of four tassels that Jesus would have worn as a traditional Jewish man. I'm going to go back to um, Numbers chapter 15, verse 38 and 39, and read why he was wearing those tassels and the significance of them. This is the Lord saying to Moses, Numbers Numbers 15, 38. Speak to the Israelites and say to them, Throughout the generations to come, you are to make tassels on the corners of your garment with a blue cord on each tassel. You will have these tassels to look at so that you will remember all the commands of the Lord. So Jesus, again, being a a, a good Jewish man, would have those four corner tassels on his garment. She sees and just thinks, if I will touch one of them, just touch them, I will be healed. Now Luke points out, for years he's gone to doctors, but they've never been able to help her. But if she thinks, if I'll just touch the tassel, I'll be healed. Let me answer a few of these, uh, the observation or questions. Um, The tassel, again, is not the object of her faith, it's Jesus. Why does she avoid face-to-face? I would just take it, common sense would say, just out of sensitivity. There's a crowd of people there. She has a very personal issue. She doesn't want to bring it out in front of everybody. But she has this belief. And so I don't think it's superstition. It's a faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus recognized she touches the tassel who touched me. And there's this press of a crowd. And and Luke says they were almost crushing him. And so people would say, well, of course people are touching you, pressing you. But there's two different types of touches here, right? There is the press of a crowd, which is proximity. Sometimes there's the pat on the back or the, the curiosity touch, whatever that is. That's one kind of touch. But then there's a second touch where there's a touch in need, in expectation, and in faith. And Jesus recognizes both touches. But he recognizes there's a touch that was that in hope, in expectation, and in faith. Who touched me? What's interesting to me is this. Jesus attracts these crowds, and there's all these people who want to touch him. Those are irrelevant to Jesus. That's not faith. What's relevant to him is that one person, just that one person that comes in faith. The crowds were all pressing around him, but just that one person. Let me give you a a quick illustration. This was a number of years ago. I was living in America. There was a movement called Promise Keepers, and, and it was a major men's Christian men's movement. And it would fill, almost fill, uh, large gridiron stadiums. And I remember being in one in Indianapolis, and it was probably fifteen to twenty thousand men on either side of this big gridiron field. And there's no there was no uh, you know football being played. It was just a, this rally for Jesus and the speakers and so forth. But at one point there's a break and on one side of the field, again, you got about fifteen to 20,000 guys over there, and they're going to start this cheer. We love Jesus. Yes, we do. We love Jesus. What about you? And they're pointing to the other side of the field. And then you're, I'm on the other side of the field, and the other side of the field is supposed to do this. We love Jesus. Less we, yes, we do. We love Jesus. What about you? And they go back and forth on this. Some of you might know I wasn't really a great participant in that. Now, and here's the reason why, in my mind, if Jesus is present in that room, and he is, it was an enclosed uh, stadium, if Jesus is there, I don't think he's going to say to the organizers, here's what I want you to do in a break. I want this half to cheer for me, and then this half to come back and cheer for me. That's what I want. I really don't think that's what Jesus wants. He doesn't want the rah-rah. He wants genuine faith. That's what this woman does. She comes and she touches him in expectation, hope, and faith. How are we approaching Jesus this day? If it's just the rah-rah, don't worry about it. He doesn't care. But if you come in faith, it's the kind of faith that he honors. That's how we come to worship him, even today. It's how we want to worship him in spirit, and in truth. Here's the third point. Jesus has the final word over death. And and I think this needs to be clear. It's there in the passage. When I say Jesus above all, I mean above all, everything. If we're asked to have faith in Jesus and our great enemy is death, faith that ends in death is not helpful. That's not helpful. Again, look at verse 23 in Matthew 9. When Jesus entered the synagogue leader's house and saw the noisy crowd and the people playing pipes, he said, go away. The the girl is not dead but asleep. But they laughed at him. After the crowd had been put outside, he went and took the girl by the hand and she got up. News of this spread through all that region. Just a couple of observations. Jesus comes to the house where the, the little girl has died. There's, there's a noisy crowd, and the people are playing pipes. Now, in that culture, in that first century culture, even with poor families, it was expected if there was a death, there would be at least two flute players and at least one professional wailing woman. In other words, she comes, she sets the tone, at least one, just with loud wailing to show that there's grief in this house. This is often uh, contrary to, to how Westerners grieve. Sometimes it's just this grief and total silence. But in this case, there's a noise there, and it's a very noisy affair. And Jesus is not concerned about the noise. It's the noise of death. And Jesus says, that's the noise of death, and it doesn't belong in this house. He wants to speak of life. He tells them, go away. Here's the next noise that comes in the house. What's the noise? Laughter. Loud laughter. She's just sleeping, And I'll wake her up. And they laugh at him. Now, now you think about at that point, Jesus may say, okay, just stick around. You just stick around, just see what's gonna come. But he sends them out of the room because you know why? Jesus is not there to entertain them. He's not there to prove a point. What he does, according to other uh, gospel accounts, he takes the three close disciples and the parents, and he goes into that room. And he takes the hand of this little girl, and he tells her to wake up. And she lives. She lives. I'm going to read a quote from uh, Frederick Dale Bruner. Kind of an interesting thought because I think we need to apply this. We need to apply it for us today. And he says this We do not believe Christians, he's saying, for, speaking for himself, but I would agree. We do not believe Christians should try to raise the dead today, but expectant hope, which is faith, believes that Jesus will raise the dead on that last day. You want to know how faith is exhibited today? It's that hope in Christ Jesus. He has proven he is victorious over sin and death, and our faith is in him. Let me read again the um, from It Is Well With My Soul, that Horatio Spafford hymn. But The last, the the final verse goes like this. And again, you just got to enter into his grief, but it enters and it helps us in our grief. And he says this, And Lord haste the day when my faith shall be sight. In other words, yeah, faith is faith. We walk by faith and not by sight. But one day there will be sight. We will see the resurrected Jesus face to face we will see those who have died in Christ once again. The clouds be rolled back like a scroll. The trumpets resound and the Lord shall descend. Even so, it is well with my soul. I want to read one more passage from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Great passage of our our faith. The Apostle Paul uh, speaking to Christians and he says this. Brothers and sisters, verse 13, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death. So he makes it clear, sleep is a euphemism here for death. So that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. You and I are different. We're different. For we believe that Jesus died, there's the object of our faith, that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. Again, the euphemism. According to the Lord's own word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep, for the Lord himself, will come down from heaven with a loud command and with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so here's our faith. And so we will be with the Lord forever. So what's the application? Therefore, encourage one another with these words. How do we deal with crises in our life, with these ongoing struggles, times of uncertainty? Two words, by faith. Who is the object of our faith? Not just faith in faith. Jesus Christ, the crucified one, the risen one, the coming one. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Pray with me. Lord Jesus, you have shown us who you are. And though we've never seen you face to face, we believe in you, we trust in you. And we know that one day we will be with you. Father, we thank you that you are the God of all comfort And even these stories, like Horatio Spafford, remind us that there are Christians who have lived by faith and hope and trust, and we want to follow in their footsteps. And I pray that we would encourage one another with these words, in Christ's name, amen.